Welcome to Dispatches, the official podcast for the Journal of the American Revolution. The Journal of the American Revolution publishes weekly online at www.allthingsliberty.com. For the latest in research, reviews, and commentaries, America's Most Important History is available free of charge at the Journal of the American Revolution. To me, it's 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 a frozen time capsule where between two revolutions, the American Revolution was finished and the French Revolution was brewing. This was a moment in time. It was a day when everything was still and quiet and everything was at peace. That's John Smith. He's got a new article featuring the Founding Fathers at Notre Dame. And he's our guest today. I'm Brady Kreitzer, and this is Dispatches. This episode is brought to you by Henry Holt & Company, publishers of the new book, The British Are Coming, The War for America, Lexington to Princeton, by Rick Atkinson. Available now. Hello everyone, welcome back. I'm your host, Brady Kreitzer. On today's episode, we're going to talk to longtime Journal of the American Revolution contributor, John Smith, about what he calls a unique snapshot in time. That is, the Founding Fathers in the Cathedral of Notre Dame in Paris. This is a really interesting article for the website, uh, because when you write about the American Revolutionary Period, uh, you have to consider a lot of things from an editorial viewpoint, you know, such as when do I release this article? Well, very few of our articles are what you would describe as timely. That is to say that uh, the issue they deal with directly can be seen on television right now in the 21st century. They're all important. They're all timely in the way that any historical topic is timely. Uh, but John's article on Notre Dame is especially timely uh, because it was just a major news story this past spring when it burned. Uh, notice I didn't say burn to the ground, thank God, uh, but it did burn. Significant parts of it are gone. And that really sort of gets to the heart, I guess, of what I'd like to speak about on this episode with John. Uh, and that is how much history uh, can one place hold and what do you value as the most important history? On this episode, we're going to hear about John Adams and Thomas Jefferson as a guest of the Marquis de Lafayette and King Louis himself uh, in the Cathedral of Notre Dame. And yet, when it was burning, we all saw it on television and online, uh, no one mentioned that. They mentioned the enormous importance of the religious artifacts inside. They mentioned Napoleon crowning himself emperor inside. Uh, They mentioned a lot of different things. Uh, famous artists of the Renaissance. I mean, the building's been there for uh, about 700 years. Uh, And this wasn't one of them. Now, I may be playing favorites here, uh, but I'm not necessarily upset by that. I mean, I should be, right? I'm I'm a historian of the 18th century. But when a building encompasses that much history, that much significance, it may be better just to take it all for what it is, uh, the all-encompassing history of it, realizing that over uh, six or seven centuries, you're going to encounter a lot of very important people uh, on any given day at any given time. 
So seeing that cathedral burn was, uh, was heartbreaking. But as a historian, I also knew I had to sort of step back a bit. I had to remove myself from the equation. Uh, I am a historian. I am Catholic. So that cathedral holds a, an important religious perspective in my life. Uh, but it was sad, but I understood I was watching history. You know, the uh, parts of that building have been destroyed and rebuilt many times over, over the centuries. Uh, and this is, unfortunately, a terrible reminder uh, that the history of this building is still being written. And it seems like it's going to be rebuilt. Uh, so that's wonderful. Um, but again, it gets to the heart of the matter. Uh, what kind of history is too much history? As terrible as it was, that event, that moment... The burning of Notre Dame was part of that history. Uh, John touches on a lot of really interesting things in this article. Uh, one of them he talks about today in the interview uh, is that during the French Revolution, that building was uh, attacked and beaten up and vandalized because it was a very sort of anti-religious event in, in many ways. Um, and a lot of people kind of you know, sneered or snickered at uh the Lady of Paris, right? Notre Dame, uh, Our Lady. And yet, when you saw it burn here in the 21st century, you didn't see people sneering, you didn't see people snickering. Uh, you saw thousands of Parisians surround the building late into the night as it burned, uh, praying and singing Ave Maria and all these incredibly moving things. Um, so who's to say religion is dead, right? That was pretty religious to me. And something that you wouldn't have necessarily seen three or 400 years ago. So that's the crux of this article. And it's a wonderful, as John says, our guest today, John Smith, moment in time. It shows the expansiveness of the American Revolution. It shows the reverberating impact that the event has. But it also lets us highlight a place, Notre Dame Cathedral, which is still around today. We can still visit. We can still appreciate and maybe now, in just some small way, uh, understand it as part of the revolutionary story. So sit back, relax, and enjoy our interview with John Smith. John Smith, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. Tell us about your background. Well, after uh, some military time I put in, I did 40 years in the energy business and you know doing what we all do get your degrees at night and raise a family and everything so i finally got to retire a few years ago and i fell into some films and tv and then reading and writing about the american revolution what first drew your interest into this topic on this article well i um again i i liked doing this deep research into things of the American Revolution by just reading other people's books and other people's story. The deep research, I mean, is like going on to Founders Online in the National Archives, which I think is a huge, huge national treasure. And anybody can go on and read anybody's letters and correspondence. And, and it's like David McCullough said, being a historian, it gives you free reign to read other people's mail. <laughs> so... So I like doing that and kind of getting into the mind of of the people. And really, from that point, I was just trying to reading and writing stories for Don Haggiston, Journal of the American Revolution, but doing it with the twist of trying to make 
the founders uh, real people with their own problems and foibles and and things like that just make them even more spectacular knowing the times that they lived in and what they're going through and what they still accomplished in spite of it. So I try to make the stories whimsical or funny or poignant or stories that nobody knows even happened. Notre Dame has been in the news quite frequently lately because of the terrible fire, uh, but it's always played a special role in French geopolitics. Could you maybe talk a little bit about the role that Notre Dame Cathedral has played in French foreign affairs over the years? Yes. Well, well, first of all, when they caught fire a couple of months ago, I started wondering uh, how my friends, I, I tend to think of them as friends now, John Adams, Jefferson, they were all over in Paris at that time, of how they might have interacted with Notre Dame. So I started doing some deep research into it, and it gets me into the whole idea of what you said of the, the French monarchy at that time and the Roman Catholic Church were, were intertwined. They were one and the same, hand in hand. One legitimized the other. And so while diplomatic receptions were done out at the Palace of Versailles or in town at Palace of Tuileries, in Notre Dame, it was a place for state holidays and anything having to do with strengthening the monarchy in front of the people, like the christening of the royal babies, which this article's about. And, uh, and then don't forget, Napoleon even crowned himself emperor in Notre Dame. So it's had this long history of, of monarchy and politics and uh, the Roman Catholic religion all intertwined like that. So it was, it was, you know, the, it was the state religion of the time. So this cozy relationship it had is why the, during the French Revolution, the people not only stormed the Bastille, but they stormed Notre Dame. And that's not well known, but they massacred priests and looted the inside. And even there are some statues on the outside of the church. Decapitation is very popular there. They decapitated the statues' heads, even. They're so angry. And those heads were only found, I think it was 1977, they found the heads reunited with the statues. So, so it was really one and the same. Why was the Marquis de Lafayette attending Notre Dame on this day? What brings him there uh, that is the focus of your article? Well, the, the Te Deum was uh, on that particular day was a day of official celebration for childbirth. It was the, their second son, Marie Antoinette, and King Louis XVI had their second son, and so a few days later on a Friday, they were having a total, you might call it a big birthday bash, but it was, it was called a Te Diem, and that's short for Te Diem Latimus, which means we celebrate, uh, we praise thee, O God. And anytime anything was happening, the king's birthday, always, they always had a religious ceremony called Te Diem. And so they're having a Te Diem on that day. And King Louis the Sixteenth decreed that all the male nobility in the area be in attendance for that day, not only for the pizzazz factor, but also show, a showing of respect to the baby and maybe maybe being a guard a little bit. Lafayette was there in his royal capacity or his his, aristic, his aristocratic capacity, 
but uh, a relative of Lafayette had been a must, one of the King's Musketeers. So he, he was there in kind of a support capacity, but his wife uh, was given the invitations to invite X number of people. As long as it wasn't riffraff, you can invite X number of people to go with you, and that's what, that's what she was doing. You've already mentioned some of these individuals. You've called them your friends. The Marquis de Lafayette will bring a number of guests, particularly American diplomats. Uh, who does he bring? Well, it's uh, Adrian. I'd like to call Adrian. That's Mrs. Lafayette because it makes her a little bit more human. Adrian invited, let's see, Thomas Jefferson, uh, the four Adams family, which at that time was John and Abigail Adams, and John Quincy. They always call him John Quincy. And uh, Nabby, which was Abigail II, it wasn't uncommon in those days to name a, the daughter after the mother as well. So Abigail II, Nabby, was there, along with uh, some other people like David Humphreys, who was a, a famous Revolutionary War, uh, War person, and Silas Dean, and, or uh, Benjamin West, and a few other people. But it was mostly the big ones. And I, I noticed that Benjamin Franklin, who was arguably the most famous person in the world. He was in Paris, of course, at that time, but he wasn't there. And I started wondering, well, why didn't they invite uh, Benjamin Franklin? I still cannot find out why. Certainly he would have been invited, but I don't know why. It could be that uh, he was in such poor health at this time. He left Paris not too long after this. That the thought of sitting through a long uh, ceremony just didn't appeal to him. So, but I don't know about that. But I'm sure he would have been invited. What did the American delegation have to say about their experience in France and and on this day? Well, Benjamin Franklin, of course, was the first diplomat over there on Christmas 1776, and he uh, started his job in the early part was to smooth the French nobility and the French. Uh, aristocracy and monarchy to the American cause to give them uh, money, uh, supplies, troops, things like that. And after a short amount of time with his workload, he just didn't have enough time. So they sent over John Adams, which (laughs) if there was an odd couple, it was Ben Franklin and John Adams because they were like oil and water. They just, just got on each other's nerves and just, you know, he, Adams was this almost puritanical type of person who rose with the sun and you have to be in the office at eight o'clock and Franklin would stroll in around noon or so because he was up all night schmoozing the wives of the nobility to, and that's the way you got things done in Paris then, but Adams refused to believe it. And they just had a going at it at each other, but they were, trying to get the monarchy to come over to the side of the Americans and ideally uh, give them enough money and legitimacy so that when they could, when America could declare independence, France would come in and declare war against Britain and that would kind of get things going from there. So they had a very, very subtle job, but they they each did their part of doing it, and then other people came in eventually too. And Jefferson came in with his style and class, and but people came and went, 
but that's mostly what they were doing. And the, Franklin was familiar with European intrigue, but it was all brand new to Adams. And he would write about how he hated it. He hated the French and the French hated him. Of course, Adams hated everybody. So, you know, it was some of his writing is pretty humorous, but they would write about uh, the monarchy and the failings of having a state church and things like that. One of the things that, that I love about your article is is how you use some unconventional sources uh, to maybe elaborate on things a little more. Surprisingly, it was the children of John Quincy Adams that had probably the most to say about this event. So could you talk about uh, what they wrote? Yeah, the uh, Nabby and John Quincy both kept a diary and a journal, and they, from their own interesting point of view, would record everything going on. It, that's where the nucleus of this whole article came from, and each with their own style. John Quincy would, usually he was about 17, he was well-schooled, and he'd usually write uh, from a point of view of, of a statesman, almost in a diplomat, for instance, he would write um, that the people in France could hardly wait until the birth of this stupid baby, and as if the fate of his life depended upon it, <laughs> making fun of that, or saying that, yeah, the crown passes down from from heredity, you know, as long as you're willing to be governed by a fool or a tyrant. <laughs> so that's typical Don Quincy things. But Mabby would write other things from a complete different point of view, but just as valid. For instance, right after the baby was born, this is the, the second son of um, Marie Antoinette and and the king. Uh, everybody would go to Versailles and stare at this baby and go ooh and on. But she would say, if this had happened to have been a princess, she would have been scarce noticed. So a little bit of women's equality in there at that time. But but one particular passage in Nabby's journal, which is is still a it was a popular book right after she wrote it, and you can still buy it online. But one interesting thing that really touched me that again goes back to making the founders real people they were all going in coaches from adrian's house miss madame lafayette's house to notre dame and jefferson was sitting next to Nabby, and he there were people lining the road all the way they're just hanging off the roofs and through the windows and mobbing the streets and jefferson leaned over and told Nabby, i bet there's as many people on the street as there is in the whole state of Massachusetts. And when she, she, when she wrote that, it just struck me that this is one of those types of things that you never read, you never hear about, but it makes Jefferson very human and just the whole situation being very human. This article drips with salacious rumors swirling around the event uh, that many Americans talk about. Rumor is, is present in, in all politics for sure. But it's always played a unique role in French history. So could you talk about the role that rumors and whispers play in, in French politics in the 18th century? Oh, yeah. Yeah, the rumor rumor and intrigue just go together whenever you have power. Rumor and intrigue just goes with it. It's been that way since Rome and certainly the British Empire. But in France, it was at that time, it was no different with the French monarchy. So, and even in the story, John Quincy says he was sitting in 
Lafayette's house. Every Monday they have a levy in uh, Lafayette's house where the American delegation could go and have coffee and tea and cake. And Lafayette came from the church and or Versailles and was saying that there was a rumor going around. Now, this is Marie Antoinette had just had the baby. And Lafayette comes in and says, there's a rumor going around that she had twin sons. And this is quite a scandal because the official thing was that there's only one son. But the real scandal was that King Louis the Sixteenth was not the father. <laughs> so this is just, you know, some great stuff is actually a, a guard in the in the legion, you know, that Marie Antoinette knew and none of it was true, but it, it really got things going. But the important thing to remember about the power of rumors during this time, right when this story was happening in April seventeen eighty five, Marie Antoinette was in the middle of this intense rumor that she's completely guiltless, but it was such a sordid and intense rumor that it helped to fuel one of the things to help to fuel the whole French Revolution when it came along. It's called the, the Affair of the Diamond Necklace, and it was going on right during that time. And that's at the Tadeum. The king was there, but the queen wasn't for a number of reasons. It'd be scandalous if she was there five days after the birth, but mostly because also because she was so unpopular. So you could even say hated at this time that, you know, the tomatoes might have been flying or something. She was just this, this terrible person and very unpopular. And that helped to, the pamphlets about her helped to fuel the French Revolution. But this other scandal rumor was going on right during that time. And I'm not, I'm really surprised they haven't made a movie out of that particular scandal. At the end of this article, you do a wonderful job of, of highlighting uh, one seemingly insignificant event that could be viewed as a precursor of things to come. You describe it as an ominous event. Could you talk about that? Yeah. Yeah, I, it dawned on me when I'm sitting there reading John Quincy's uh, journal that as the day was over, this, to me, this ominous warning about the looming social unrest and the looming French Revolution was symbolic in this one last thing that he had for that day. And I'll, briefly, it was the end of the day, and he was in, John Quincy was in the coach with a couple other people, and they're heading back to um, their place in western Paris. And they crossed over the Cour Lorraine, and right at the corner, he, John Quincy noticed a lot of peasants just hitting each other and floundering around in the sand, and the police were trying to break it up. But uh, what happened was the king had gone by, and I guess his, it was one of his uh, habits to, when he saw a group of people to possibly throw out some money, you know, like a, a pittance to the peasants. And so he had thrown out some money, and the peasants were still there sifting through the sand, trying to find any money that might have been left. And John Quincy writes, you know, writes about it, and is he said it's the cause of many a squabble and maybe some broken heads that day. And it just dawned on me that this is just the beginning. This is really three years before, to me, three years before the French Revolution started. 
they, they stormed the Bastille four years, but three years from this day is when they looked in the treasury of the, of the French uh, nobility and found it was, it was empty. I mean, they had spent everything. And that was, to me, that was the beginning of the French Revolution. But it started, it started from that process. And any, you can only see something as ominous if you're in the future looking back on an event. But us in the 21st century get to look at this small event that John Quincy noted and say, aha, uh-huh, this is pretty ominous. What should the legacy of this event be? Uh, what does this event in Notre Dame, which can seemingly be isolated, uh, teach us about the 18th century and the revolutionary era? Well, to me, the legacy of this would be when they stormed Notre Dame during the worst part of the French Revolution, they just looted and destroyed it. They renamed Notre Dame the Temple of Reason, which didn't catch. It went back to Notre Dame, of course. And they got, they're trying to get everybody to worship, instead of worship God, worship enlightenment principles, enlightenment principles, and so on. And secretly, the French people were still, you know, in Catholicism and still worshiping God. And to a greater extent, this ceremony and this time, to me, the legacy is that deep religious values and the value of social ceremony seem to continue through all times and are actually needed by society to keep it together. But even through the French Revolution, which was a very violent revolution, these values, meaning religious values and the value of ceremony, kept on through the whole thing and still to this day. And even when the British royal family has a baby, the the ceremony still happens, and it's a way of uniting society. And I think the, the legacy is that even in the worst of times, these type of values that strengthen humanity still seem to go on. John Smith, thank you for joining us. Oh, thank you. I enjoyed it very much. I hope everybody reads the uh, story and there's a lot of embedded little funny things in there that I think will really tickle them. But just, it's really, if I can say it, it to me, it's, it's, just, it's a frozen time capsule where between two revolutions, the American Revolution just finished the French Revolution was brewing. This was a moment in time. It was a day when everything was still and quiet and everything was at peace. And how people, people that we know, American founders, noted it. The music played in this episode included works by Kevin McLeod and the Sturbridge Colonial Militia. Any unauthorized reproduction or use of this podcast without the express written permission of the Journal of the American Revolution is strictly prohibited. For everyone here at Dispatches, I'm Brady Kreitzer saying so long.